0: But we're going to continue a series that we started a few weeks ago called Walking with God. And it's honestly, it's been a concept that I've thought about for a while. What does that look like? Because when I read that story about Enoch, how he walked with God, and that God eventually took him from the earth without even dying, it made such a markup on me to walk with God. And I know it's something we think we know, but I wanted to dive into the series to really flesh that out and figure out what does it look like to walk with him? Not just to believe. Or to know him, but to walk with him on a daily basis. And so that's kind of the spirit of the lesson and the theme of this lesson this morning. If you've been with us, these are the three lessons we've done so far. We started with created, how important it is to be created in order to walk with God. Number two, we looked at invited part one, being invited into the covenant of God. And and we did last week, we did part two of that. And we really dove into the covenant of God and how important it is to be united to him in that covenant of love. And so today we're going to look at a concept that pretty much all of us know, or maybe we don't. And it's this idea of being saved, walking with God saved. Now this obviously could be a two-parter as well. I'm going to let the Spirit dictate that. We'll see if that happens next week. But we're going to look at a passage from Romans chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, you can jump over there. And we're going to look at the first seven verses of Romans chapter 6. We also have Bibles available on the back bookshelf for your benefit. If you want to take one of those Bibles, you can use them, you can keep them. Uh, there for your benefit. So Romans chapter 6 is where we're going to be, verses 1 to 7. Before we get there, though, do you ever have to do anything that's sort of against your nature? Something that you don't really like to do? Something that just isn't a part of really what you are and how you think? Sometimes we do. We have to do things that are against our nature. I'm going to give you a list of things that are against my nature that I just don't like. And it's just now how I'm made, not how my, not how my mind works. And uh, see if you can fellowship with any of these. Number one, that is against my nature summer summer i'm not a huge fan of summer and i I know that sounds like a buzzkill because summer's like you know five months long and (laughs) it's a long time to be down a little bit but you're you're with me kelly um it doesn't mean i don't enjoy some aspects of summer because i do i really enjoy the sun of course but i don't like heat or humidity who's with me who's not a huge fan of heat i think that's probably why you're up here right um mosquitoes not a fan of mosquitoes I don't like wearing shorts, I just don't. I feel like I look like a 16 year old when I got my shorts and sneakers on. I don't really like the look. And I've noticed that the summers are quite hot here in the North Country and the winters are not that cold. So we need to reverse that North Country, right? We need the summers to be a little bit more mild and the winters to really to really get us. So uh, if things don't get, get with the program, I'm gonna keep moving further North. I'm just gonna go North until I find the winter that I want. And If I have to start a church in the North Pole, So be it, (laughs) Siberia. I'm just teasing. I'm not going anywhere. Number two thing that's against my nature is to watch long movies with slow-moving plots. I don't like them. Don't like them. Anyone else? I need a little bit of a pace with my movie. In fact, I'll give you 20, 30 minutes in a movie. If in 20, 30 minutes that plot can't get somewhere, I'm out. Ash Janine, she's called me impatient, and maybe I am, but that movie is there to entertain me and to keep me interested, and if it can't do it, I'm out, and I'll go watch basketball. Because basketball rarely disappoints. <laughs> Who said it does not? Oh Yes. Yeah, I'll watch your basketball game, Darian. Absolutely. That's going to be exciting. Here's another thing that's against my nature is to succumb to peer pressure. I don't do it. I never have done it. I, I, I never smoked a cigarette. In uh, I went to public school my whole life. Never smoked a cigarette. Never did one drug. Because I'm immediately skeptical. Anyone else just kind of start skeptical? I'm just kind of that way by nature. I'm I'm probably the least person that could be involved and talked to into being a cult. Because I think everything's a cult. I really do. I kind of start that way. I'm already skeptical, so I don't think peer pressure would ever work against me. Here's another one. I don't take baths. I don't like baths. I don't understand baths. Um, I don't want to sit in my own dirt (laughs) as the water continues to cool down. I just don't think that's a pleasant experience. I think the shower was the perfect invention. You take the dirt off me, the filth off me and you send it down a drain, and it keeps hot on my flesh, and I like that. Um, I know, that's weird. I don't like heat, and yet I love hot showers and not tepid baths. How about this one? I'm not spontaneous. Anyone else not spontaneous? One person. The rest of you are? Okay, JB. we got a couple. I am not spontaneous. I, I like a plan. I like a good plan. I want a good plan to come before me. Let me look at that plan. Let me edit that plan. You guys ever heard the phrase, fly by the seat of your pants? What does that mean? That sounds very dangerous. I'm just not the kind of guy that's going to do that. I want to plan. I want to know what's going on before I say yes. Here's another thing that's against my nature is to shop on Black Friday at Walmart. I'm never going to do it. And that's two things I don't like, Walmart and Black Friday, put together. I, no thank you. Everyone else can sweat and bleed to say $7. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to shop online in my jammies pay full retail price and have them delivered to my door. That's my nature. And I will save the mental stress by doing it that way. Number seven, the thing that's against my nature is to grow my hair out. (laughs) I'm just not the kind of guy that's probably going to do that. Um, I like to focus more on my charisma, right? Who needs time with a hair anyways? It's like, I'm not going to worry about that. So that's against my nature. Number eight, it's against my nature to get a suntan. I just don't care i don't care if i got a suntan or not i don't like to sit in heat who cares about having a suntan yes i know you do christy christy loves to be really dark in the summer i don't care i, I say i say embrace the pasty i really do if you're white embrace it in fact i'm the guy that if you go to the beach with me i, I think this happened once my i was going into the water and my mom said hey todd you should take your socks off <laughs> before you go in the water i said mom they are off that's how white my feet were. In fact, you guys remember the story? I kept my feet out in the sun for like 40 seconds, and they were burnt to a crisp because they had never seen the sun before. They didn't know how to react. Um, I just don't care about suntans. Here's number nine thing that's against my nature: to sneeze quietly. I'm not a quiet sneezer. My wife is. She has a little bird sneeze, and so she tries to stop it. And I think one day her eyeballs are just going to come right out of her head. I told her, I said, that's really dangerous. Uh, versus me, I just let it out. If it, I, mean, I try to block it so it's, you know, it's not spreading everywhere. But, but here's honestly a story. I, you guys know for a while, Genfoot, um, the company was right next door to us. And my office is right next to where they work. So I hear they're pounding and banging all day long. And then sometimes just a sneeze comes over me and I just have to sneeze. And I told you, I let it out. I let it right out in case, in case the devil's there. I just want to let them know, get out of my way. And I just sneeze out loud. And a couple times I've sneezed them quiet. I'm serious. I'll sneeze and then for the next 20 seconds I don't hear noise over there. Because I think they're probably wondering, what was that? Should we investigate? And now Jenfoot's not even there anymore. Have anyone noticed? I wonder if I sneezed him out of the building. You uh, what's that? You sneezed I sneezed him quite permanently. So maybe we could take their space. Um, number 10 thing that's against my nature is to lead a boring church. I was never going to do it. I was never going to be partnered with a boring church, and thankfully I didn't get one, did I? I got Crossroads Church, and you guys are a wonderful fit for my family. Well, we're kind of going there somewhere today. We're going to talk about something that's sort of against all of our natures, and it's to not sin. It's to not sin. And I know that sounds kind of like a double negative. It's against our nature to not sin. Because what is in our nature, according to how we were born, is to sin. So if you have your Bibles, join me in Romans chapter 6. We're going to talk about being saved today. Romans chapter 6, we're going to read the first seven verses and dive into this text today. Hear the word of God. The Apostle Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? from sin. Amen. Saved is where we're going today. Our three-point outline, if you've got your notes, is number one, a curious question. Number two, a unique gift. And number three, a glorious freedom. Let's start with a, a curious question. Now, did you ever have one of those teachers growing up that said this phrase, there's no such thing as a dumb question? You guys ever hear that from a teacher before? And then she might pause and say, only a dumb student. Well, hopefully they didn't say that. That sounds really mean. Um, Do you believe that? Do you believe there's no dumb questions? Anyone believe that? I I didn't believe that growing up. I think there was plenty of dumb questions. In fact, I'm going to prove it to you. I think there's plenty of dumb questions. I'm going to give you a couple of dumb questions here. I found these online. I don't know if you can read these. I'm going to read these out loud. Number one question. Should I tell my parents that I'm adopted? What? You don't think they know that? That's pretty dumb. Number two, does Donald, why does Donald Duck wear a towel when he comes out of the shower when he doesn't usually wear pants? That's a dumb question. Although maybe, I don't know how to spell dumb. Maybe he doesn't know how to um, wear pants. Maybe, I don't know, maybe we should investigate that. Here's number three, if I eat myself, my twins like this one, will I get twice as big or disappear completely? Why can't I do this, dumb? You guys see the irony here? Like, I can't spell dumb? And number four, does it take 18 months for twins to be born or nine? What do you think? Do you know? We had twins and it takes, it takes nine. Or Actually, it took less than nine. They were out in seven months. So that's kind of an interesting question. Let me give you one more. See if this shows up. Um, this question says, I'm so lost. Isn't NFL just for the U.S.? And if so, how does New England have a team? What? Whoops. That's pretty dumb. Um... Are there dumb questions? There probably are dumb questions. But thankfully, we have a God who allows us to ask sometimes questions that seem dumb because our God loves us, and, and our God is willing to answer all the questions that we can throw at him. Aren't you thankful that he does that? Anything that you have. And I was intimidated by that growing up, thinking that I shouldn't ask questions of my pastor or parents in case in case it was an embarrassing thing that I should already know. But it says in James chapter 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom... You should, ask who gives, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. I love that about my God. I love that that's his nature. That if we need wisdom from God, we simply can go to him and ask. Because the Apostle Paul is going to start this lesson by asking a question, which sounds a little peculiar when you first read it. He says in verse 1 of Romans 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Does that sound like an odd question? Because it should. It's a little bit of a strange question. and So you, have, you may have two questions reading that, going, well, why would he ask that? And number two, why does that sound so random? Where did that come from? Well, Paul, how did that enter your mind? Well, you have to understand the Bible is split up for our benefit into chapter divisions and verse divisions, so that we can easily navigate through the Bible. But in the day when Paul wrote this, they wouldn't have read it that way. They wouldn't have opened their Bibles to Romans chapter 6, and, and just started a lesson that way. They would have read the entire letter together and would have known what Paul was speaking about by the time he got to Romans 6, verse 1. And so in an effort to help us understand why Paul is even asking that question, let's go back to Romans chapter 5 because this is kind of a curious question we're asking today. You guys seen this thinking man statue? And maybe you're sitting there thinking about that question that Paul just posed. Why would he ask that? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, here's how Romans chapter 5 ends. And this helps us understand why Paul is even asking that question. Because he says in Romans 5, verse 20, Now the law, God's law, notice it, came to increase the trespass. Now that's another peculiar statement, isn't it? God's law was sent to this earth to increase the trespass. The word trespass means sin. Isn't that peculiar? That God would send his law to increase the trespass. Now, We need to be careful. What God is not doing is he's not complicit in evil. Okay, God is not trying to increase evil. What he's seeking to help us understand is how sinful we really are. He's trying to help us understand how dire the situation is. And so when he sends his law, what it does is it's like putting a mirror in front of someone who's very, very dirty. And they have to look at themselves and have to notice how dirty they really are. And if you could tell what God is doing there, he's actually seeking to help us find the Savior. So he sends his law not to save us, but to help us reveal how bad things are. And also what he sends his law, we start to realize how far away we are from actually keeping that law. And by God's grace, we will look to someone who can help us. And that's the whole point. So he says, the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, because that's a dire start to that phrase, notice it, grace abounded all the more. Is that amazing? And God planned it that way, that He was going to send His law, which was going to compound the problem, make the problem of our sinfulness look even worse. But thankfully, because our God's love, our God's nature is to be loving, as He sent His grace to go further than the sin would go. The sin would go very far; the grace would go even farther. And so He sent the law to eventually send His grace, so that the grace made. A tremendous impact on our soul. In verse 21, 21 he says, so that as sin reigned in death, because that's exactly what sin does, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a very complex but powerful verse, a couple verses. That God sent his law to compound the problem so that we would be able to receive his abounding grace so that we would go from death to eternal life. That's the complexity of our God. And it's beautiful. And I don't know anyone else like that, who is that complex and that beautiful and that powerful and that loving. But our God is. And this is what sets up Paul's question. Before we get there here, you guys remember the story of King Saul and King David? you guys remember that story in the Old Testament and in 1 Samuel? And uh, things were not going well between these two guys. Okay, King Saul was pretty jealous of King David. King David was getting a lot of glory and a lot of praise. He was the anointed king of Israel and Saul had been the king of Israel. And people were chanting this phrase in 1 Samuel 18, verse 7, saying Saul had slain his thousands in battle, in war, and David his tens of thousands. I just noticed this the other day and thought maybe this is a cool little parallel. That if we simply change the word here, sin has slain its thousands, but God's grace Has saved tens of thousands. According to what Paul just told us in Romans chapter 5, that sin has come and come very far, come very high, but grace has abounded all the more. And this helps us understand a little bit of grace, this term that we throw around and we use and we sing about all the time, this amazing grace that we just sang about. It is an amazing thing that God has given us His grace. And there's many definitions for this word grace. You may have heard the term uh, grace defined as God's unmerited favor, which I think is a pretty good stab at it. I think that's a pretty good definition. My dad, Mel Walker, which most of you have never met, he passed away a couple years ago, actually said this about grace, and I thought it was the best definition of grace that I've ever heard. And the Bible backs this up. He says, grace is the power of God given to mankind to help us accomplish what otherwise would be impossible for us. That is a beautiful definition of grace. That's why God has brought his grace to our doorstep, so that we could do what otherwise would be impossible for us. God loves grace, doesn't he? He loves grace. Let's see if my screen will catch up here. There we go. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writing again, we're talking to the church. He said, In him, in Jesus, we have, re- we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. We receive redemption and forgiveness all through the grace of God. If you're alive today, if you have received forgiveness and salvation from your sins, it's all because of God's grace. Not because of your holiness or your righteousness or your ability to live to God's law. God's grace is the reason that we have been redeemed and forgiven. One of the most famous passages that talks about grace is from Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul said to the church, For it is by grace That you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. How have we been saved? By God's grace. God's grace through Jesus is the entire reason that we're saved and alive today. Thank be to God. So God loves grace. As you can tell, grace is one of those things that God is not coy about. He loves sending his grace. And so we come to Romans 6, chapter one, uh, verse 1, and he says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That helps us understand the question a little bit more, why Paul would even ask that. And Paul's asking what's called a hypothetical question. Have you heard that before? Or maybe a rhetorical question. Maybe a question that doesn't need to be answered, or maybe a question that he's going to answer himself. And that's exactly what Paul's going to do. He's going to ask this rhetorical question, and then he's going to answer it. But let's work through the logic of that question, because I think it is sort of a logical train that we can come to once we read Romans 5 and the beginning of Romans 6. That number one, God's greatest accomplishment is the glory of his own name, and that is true. God's greatest accomplishment is the glory of his own name. Do you know why? There's nothing high to strive for. There's nothing higher to strive for than the glory of God's name. So our God being the best and greatest being that ever could exist is the person that's going to strive after the highest and greatest thing. He's not going to strive after our happiness, primarily. He's not going to strive after the glory of his angels because they all fall short of his own name and glory. So God strives after the highest thing imaginable, and that happens to be his own glory. It's not self-centered that he does that. It's not egotistical that he does that. That's exactly what you want your God to do. I mean, think about our president and the leaders of our country. Do you want them sitting in their office watching Netflix? Playing, playing games on their phone? Or do you want them worried about and concerned about really important things? Thankfully, our God is concerned about the most important thing, and that is the glory of his own name. And that allows everything to fall into place if we understand it correctly. So that is true. God's greatest accomplishment is the glory of his own It's also true that God's grace enables sinners to become righteous. We just looked at that from Scripture. And that brings God a tremendous amount of glory. That is also true. That when sinners become righteous, the only one we can give credit to is God. No sinner can take credit for their salvation or for their righteousness. Every sinner has to turn to God and say, It's all because of you. You are the one who has made me righteous. And therefore, God receives an amount of glory. So the logic follows this way. Therefore, the best way to glorify God's name is for him to give sinners an abundance of his grace. Because every time he does, it glorifies his name. And I would say that's also true to a point. Because that's the logical train Paul is kind of trying to hit off here. Because he thinks that maybe someone's asking that question after they realize that if God continues to give grace to sinners, maybe the best thing for us to do is continue to sin. Because God will have to give more grace, which will glorify his name all the more. Well, I decided to bring in verse 2 at this point, and I decided to show you what it says from the King James Version. Now when we put these verses together, this is what it says. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, in the ESV, it says in verse 2, by no means, which is a really strong statement. But I like how the King James Version says it. It says, God forbid. God forbid. That is the strongest possible way to say no. There is no stronger way to say no than God forbid. And I like the language there because I think it represents what Paul is trying to bring home. That that logical train that we just went down is so false that God forbids it. He says, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And we're going to sort of unpack what that means to be dead to sin because we are dead to sin. And Paul doesn't want us getting off the train by representing something false. So I'm going to show you a little bit of illustration. This illustration is going to fail because all illustrations fail. When you're talking about your great God, okay, there's no illustration that could perfectly capture what we're talking about today. But I want you to see this little image and I want you to picture that this water was sin. Okay, and that this is us over here drowning. Now, according to Ephesians chapter two, it doesn't even say we're drowning. It says we're dead. We're dead in our sins in which we once walked. But I want you to picture that this over here is our Lord. And there we are drowning in our sin, and the Lord comes in. Now, again, I told you all illustrations fail because the Lord never went into sin, did he? Never. Not once. Not once did our Lord commit one sin. He did all of his salvation work without sinning one time, and he had to so that we could become righteous. So the guy being in the water here does not represent this perfectly. But Jesus comes and rescues us from the sin and pulls us out of the sin. And then when we get to shore, just like we sang about, who do we praise? Do we pat ourselves on our back for our fantastic swimming? No, because we were drowning. We were dead. We give all glory to the Savior. So really the logic works this way. Well, if if Jesus and God get glory from saving us from the sin, maybe the best thing for us to keep doing is to keep jumping back in that water. Because every time we jump in the water, the Savior's got to come get us. And every time the Savior comes and gets us, we have to glorify his name. Does that sound like a good idea? Just keep diving into into the pool of sin. And this is where Paul says, by no means. Or, God forbid, how can we who die to sin still live in it? Did you know we have died to sin? Did you know we have died at all? I mean, we're sitting here today alive. We're all alive today. We're here on Sunday, February 4th, sitting here in the chairs. We're alive. Our hearts are beating. But according to what Paul says, we're dead. We've died to sin. And then, therefore, he says we should no longer live in. What is he talking about? Well, when Jesus went to Calvary, we know that Jesus came to die, right? He came to this earth to die and yield up his body so that we would live forever. And that is absolutely 100% true. And so if someone says Jesus came to die so that we don't have to die, is it true? Yes, it is. Jesus came to die so that we don't have to face punishment and the wrath of God for the sins that we've committed against God. That is absolutely true. But you know what else is true? Jesus came to die so that you and I could die. That's also true. Die to sin. The thing that used to be enslaving us, Jesus came to change our nature from sinner to saint. And we've already talked about how important that is. That Jesus came not only to teach us and to guide us, but to completely change our nature from sinner to saint so that we would be dead to sin. So you could also say it'd be absolutely true that when Jesus died on Calvary, our old self died that day. The sinfulness that we had committed, the sinfulness that we had walked in for so long, that day at Calvary, those people died so that we could find newness of life. This is what helps us make sense of this passage in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, notice that he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become New. You guys have heard this term before, right? Born again. And that's that's a true term. That's a biblical term that we use. Born again or the regeneration is another way of saying that. Born again means that God did not come to modify us or to simply nudge us the right way. He came to recreate us. He came to give us complete new spiritual rebirth. And that's really important to what Paul is saying. Because he's going to tell us that we are dead to sin. But it's not so grim as it sounds. And we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But I want to help us understand something that's going around today. And this is actually getting quite a bit of steam in our culture. And it follows the same logical train that the old one followed that Paul brought up in verse one of chapter six. And here's what's happening today with our gospel. And you know there's a devil, right? You know there's an enemy. And you know the enemy's number one job is to make truth into error. And to make error into truth, I mean that's his number one job. If he can make truth look like error and error look like truth, everything is going to follow the evil plan that he has. And so what he has done is he's actually found a forgery gospel. Has anyone ever seen a forgery dollar bill? Forgery in, in, in person. you've seen one before? You've got one at the bank? It's close, isn't it? It's hard to tell in fact. We worked at a, at a retail company at Best Buy. I worked at Best Buy for a while, and they used to give you these little markers so that you could get a bill that was $50 or whatever, you had to mark it before you put it in the little change thing to make sure that you knew that it was a real dollar bill because it looked so real. It was hard to tell with a naked eye. I couldn't tell between a fake 50 and a real 50. What we have in our culture today is a gospel that is so close to the truth that it's hard to tell that it's wrong. But here's basically how it goes. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone say these words perfectly verbatim. Because I don't think they would. It sounds wrong when you say it. But this is basically what I've seen in our culture. Is that unbelievers go to hell for their sin. Which is true. Unbelievers who reject Jesus Christ will have to pay for their sins on judgment day. That is absolutely true. But here's where things get a little bit awry. But Christians sin with impunity and go to heaven. Is that true? Do we just get forgiven? Do we, do we live the same lifestyle as a worldly person, a sinful person, and God just says, hey, listen, it doesn't matter what you do. I died for you on the cross, so live the way that you want to live. But on the last day, you just show me that little stamp on your hand, and I'm like, hey, it doesn't matter. You're forgiven. Is that true? It's not true at all. And yet sometimes, if we're not careful with the word of God, this is what we do with it. We look at it and go, man, God has saved me. God has offered me forgiveness. Man, that is fantastic because I'm living very ungodly. And you know who did this most of all? Me. I did this in my early 20s. That was my gospel in the early 20s. I realized that I was committing all kinds of sin, and I didn't seek to stop the sin. I just kept asking forgiveness for the sin which allowed me to even increase in sin. Because I knew that no matter what happened, no matter what I did in my life, I could always go to God and he would give me a blank slate. It actually increased my sinfulness. And then where we're going today is we're going to help solve this concept. My screen will catch up here. Because here's the question. Should we continue? In sin? Now that we're Christians? I mean, isn't it most God-glorifying if... If the more we sin, the more God's grace comes to us, the more God's salvation is glorified, and that's when Paul says, God forbid. God forbid we fall into that category. God forbid we fall into that fallacy. To help us understand this before we get to point two, this is a passage that we quote all the time, and we should because it's a beautiful gospel verse. It's the last verse in chapter six that we're studying today that we read during scripture reading. It says, for the wages of sin is... Death. And that's a really grim thing to hear. That if on the last day we go to get our payday from God, guess what he's going to give us? Death. That's what we've deserved, all of us. All of us deserve to go to God on the last day for him to go. The wages of sin is death. Here's your payday. And we are condemned. But thankfully, that's not how the verse ends, is it? There's a comma. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, if you're not careful with this verse, here's what the devil can help us do, okay? He can help us change this equation. He can help us change this equation by simply removing a couple words. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. By, saying, by changing this equation here, we simply come out to a different conclusion. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Now it could say the wages of sin is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see how dangerous that is to simply change the wording there? Is that what Jesus is doing? Just changing the destination? He's changing this equation to say the wages of sin is no longer death. No, I don't think so. I don't think that's at all what he's saying. In fact, let me draw a little bit of an illustration because I'm a really bad drawer. This is about the best that I can do, okay? But I want to help us understand exactly what the biblical concept of salvation looks like, okay? We all start going the wrong way, myself included. Okay, this is us right here. All of us start going the wrong way, and this wrong way, unfortunately, is sin. All of us, and if if you need proof of that, just have a child, okay? I've had eight children, and I can tell you, eight for eight. All of them are very good at sinning. And all of them start going the wrong way. All of us start going the wrong way. And that sounds really bad because the wages of sin is death. Now, could Jesus just come down and say, hey, listen, I know all things are very bad for you. I know you're headed the wrong way. I'm just going to change that equation. Now, your sin will not lead you to death. It will lead you right to heaven. Because I'm going to offer forgiveness no matter what you do. You can sin with impunity, and no matter what happens, you're going to heaven. Is that what God does? No, that's not what he does, because there's a word called repent. Have you heard that word before? And the word repent actually means turn around. Turn around. Make a 180-degree turn, and when you do, you will see Jesus. Jesus is on a completely different path. Jesus is on a path of righteousness. And he came not to change this equation. The wages of sin will always be death. But notice this, the gift of God is eternal life. There's one very important word. In, or you could say the word through, Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you notice that? That the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord through Christ Jesus our Lord, on a totally different path. Jesus came to turn us around. He came to forgive us, which he did, absolutely. We will talk about that. We will celebrate that today with communion. But he also came to change our pathway from sin, which leads to hell, to now righteousness, which leads to sanctification. We studied this when we look at 1 John. 1 John chapter 3 says it this way, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he, he appeared on earth in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. Did you notice that? Jesus came not to wink at your sin, not to sweep it under the rug. He came to take away your sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Whoa. Wow, John. Really? John? No one who abides in him keeps on sinning? No, not the way they did. They can't. Because Jesus Christ came to turn us around to a completely different pathway. In fact, when the angel came to Joseph, the, the earthly father of Jesus... The angel came and said this exact phrase in Matthew 21. It says, referring to Mary, she, your wife, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people, notice it, from the penalty of their sins? From the destination of their sins? No, from their sins. Now, when you change someone's destination or change someone's pathway, you also change their destination. You ever had to turn around in the road and literally... I, went, I told you I won, one day I went the wrong way for a half hour. Only I could do that, I think. I went south when I should have been going north for a half hour and didn't notice it. And as soon as I realized I was going wrong, you know what I did? I sped up. No, I didn't, that's stupid. I found the next exit and I turned around because that path that I was on was not gonna lead me home. I had to get off that path and get on an entirely new path, one going north. Now maybe you're sitting here a little bit nervous and that would, be, that would be okay, because I was too when I first read this. Because you're looking at this going, well, boy, this is, this is not something I really want to hear, because guess what I am? Boy, that's really big rating. I'm not going to rate because that's really hard to see. But I'm going to say this. We are sinners, aren't we? All of us. Are you a sinner? I'm a sinner. I am a sinner. And if you made me tell you all the sins that I've committed, I could not even get to one quarter of them. Because I've committed more sin than I even know. And that was my nature. And I gave you a whole list of things that were against my nature. What's against my nature is to live righteously. It is. But you know what our God came to do? Change our nature. And what I see in Christian circles a lot, and I'm really sad about this, is I see a lot of defeatism. And I think it's all over the church, sadly. And I think the devil is the one leading the charge. Defeatism is defined by an attitude characterized by the expectation of defeat and failure. That you and I are always going to be sinners. And guess what sinners do? Sin. So no matter what happens in this life, we're always going to be sinners. We'll always sin. That's just going to be our resume for the rest of time. And that's defeatism. Because that's not what my Bible says. That's not what Romans 6 says. You know what Jesus came to offer us? Victory. Not defeat righteousness not ongoing sin and that is a beautiful thing to help us understand today that jesus christ did not tell us that we will continue in sin in fact he said the very opposite you will follow my son and he will lead you to eternal life so in second peter three we find a promise from god he says the lord the lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness instead notice it he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance that is our lord's nature and that is why the lord hasn't come back yet do you know that that answers the question for why the lord has not returned to this earth because we all want it all christians want it please lord make it be today and that's a good thing but here's the reason he didn't yet he's patient and he's so patient that you in this in these chairs today and myself standing here today was able to come to repentance was able to find jesus christ If God wasn't so patient, I might not have, and you might not have. But God was not slow in keeping his promise. What he really was is patient. So there's two paths. One that leads to death. Oops. And one that I'm just having bad luck today. You know his name. There we go. And one that leads to righteousness and eternal life. And that's what Paul is telling us today. God did not come to change the equation. God did not come to weaken sin. God came to change our nature so that we could see Jesus for who he really is and we could line up right behind him and follow him to life. That is a curious question. That is our biggest point today. We need to go to number two very quickly. A unique gift. Now, did you ever get a unique gift? Yep, I got a couple stories here. Uh, (laughs) You hope I do, right? You ever get a unique gift? A present, Christmas, birthday, anniversary? A couple times I got a unique gift. When I was little, and I was—I think I was 12 years old, guess what I wanted for Christmas? The only thing I wanted for Christmas? Video games. I didn't want anything else. So my entire Christmas list was made out of video games. Here's the top 10 games that I want. Mom, dad, grandma. And I got a box that was kind of shaped like video game, and I was like, yes, somebody listened. And I opened that box, and guess what was inside? hankies, hankies with a T stenciled on it, and I just looked at this gift as if to say, uh, whose gift is this? Grandpa? Is this for you? Did I open your gift, Grandpa? But the problem was, is there was a T stenciled on it, and I knew it was for me. But I, I, think, the, I think the gift hanky is a unique gift to begin with, because you know what you do with hankies, right? You blow your nose on them, and then you stick it right back in your pocket. I think that's a unique gift. I didn't want a hanky. I couldn't let, the, let on that I didn't want a hanky. My grandma would have been hurt. But uh, that was a unique gift. Another unique gift that I got, one year I, I, it was my birthday and uh, I wanted a laptop computer. And I remember telling my family point blank, this is what I want, don't guess. I'll tell you exactly what I want. I want a laptop computer, make it happen. And it came to be my birthday and I was so excited because that's all I wanted, that's all I asked for. And they said, close your eyes. And I'm like, all right, I'll close my eyes, even though I know what's coming. So I closed my eyes, I stuck my hands out, perfect, perfect length for a laptop computer. <laughs> Christy's laughing. <laughs> Expecting the new Dell or Samsung or Sony to be put in my hands. And all of a sudden, there was a thing on me.
1: <laughs>
0: on my chest. And it didn't feel like a laptop. And I opened my eyes only to find this small orange cat on my chest. <laughs> and I think I said, what's this? <laughs> And they said, it's your birthday present. I was like, that's not a laptop. No, it wasn't. I didn't get a laptop that year. I got a fuzzy orange cat. So I called him Rambo. Because I think that I was picturing what I should do to my family. I'm teasing. But I did love that cat. I really did. That cat turned into a wonderful friend. Um, but just not the gift I asked for. Sometimes you get a unique gift, right? I, maybe you guys have received someone in, in your own personal lives. Paul, in, in Romans 6, 3, is going to tell us about a unique gift. Okay, This is a unique gift. This is not a gift that I would ever expect to ask for or want. But Paul seems to think it's very important. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? What, Paul? That, that's not the Christianity that I heard growing up. That's not what I, what I thought I was getting into. I, I didn't think I was getting into death. I thought I was getting into life. And Paul says, right. But you knew that when Christ came, you were baptized into death. Now, this word baptized that he's using, he's, he's not referring to the outward baptism of the water that we dunk people in the tank and it's a celebration of their salvation. That's not the baptism Paul is referring to. I believe he's referring to the baptism of the spirit that happens on the inward. Okay, The baptism that you can't see, but that takes place the moment you trust in Jesus Christ. Paul says, when you were baptized into Christ, you were baptized into his death. Isn't that interesting? That's a confusing thing to hear. Because what's the most famous verse in the Bible? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, which means die, but have eternal life. Why is Paul telling us the opposite? That when you trust in Jesus Christ, you're baptized into his death. And again, 1 John 2.25 says it. This is what he promised us, eternal life. That's the part that we signed up for. Not death. I I, I wouldn't have signed up for Rambo the cat, honestly, Christy, if you would have asked me. No thanks. But I got Rambo. Um, I didn't sign up for death either, but I got death, didn't we? We all got death. And let's explain that a little bit. Because he says again, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? The word baptized in the Greek is this word Immerse. Submerged. The word baptize means to be immersed or submerged. Paul is telling us that when we were submerged or immersed into Christ Jesus, we were submerged or immersed into his death. How do we make sense of that? Well, when Christ Jesus came, we've talked about this already, he came to die. That's the exact reason he came to this earth. Yes, he came to teach. He came to show, he came to do miracles and to validate his ministry. He came to rise again from the dead. But he also came to die for our sins. And he was not coy about that. He stated that many, many times, and then he followed through with it. So how is it a gift that we are immersed into Christ's death? Because Jesus resurrected from the grave three days later. Did you know that's impossible unless he died? It's a simple statement, right? That's something you could grab a hold of. Jesus could not raise from the dead unless he first had died. Jesus didn't kind of die. Jesus didn't get near death. Jesus actually died. So, in order for us to find this newness of life that we're talking about today, the first thing we must do is die. And that's exactly what happens the moment you trust in Jesus Christ. You die to sin, you die to self, you die to your old nature. And that death is incredibly important because God is going to do something really profound. Notice it, Paul doubles down in verse 4, he says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. He says it again. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, notice it, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you notice how important the death is? For us to walk in newness of life, for us to find that new nature that God wanted us to have, we first had to die. That old self had to go. That old self was in the way. Old Todd was in the way of what new Todd needed to do. So old Todd had to be nailed to the cross. Now, not actually, not physically, but spiritually, old Todd died the day Jesus died. The day I trusted in Jesus Christ, old Todd was dead. And that allowed new Todd to find life with Jesus Christ. And this is what's symbolized in communion that we're about to celebrate and in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus died. And three days later, he rose again to new life. And now he's telling us that we too can have this resurrection. In fact, the story of Lazarus is such a powerful parallel for the gospel. If you remember that story, Jesus had a friend called Lazarus, and Lazarus got really sick and then died. And Jesus was not with Lazarus when he died. He was away, and so Jesus made his way to Lazarus. By the time he got to where Lazarus was, Lazarus had been dead. How long? Four days. And according to Jewish custom, your spirit would have stayed with you three days and then departed from your body. Well, this was day four when Jesus arrived. Lazarus is as dead as Lazarus could be. And then Jesus did something profound. He came to Lazarus' tomb. He said, roll away the stone. He yelled into the tomb, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man walked out. The dead man had new life. He said, take those burial clothes off him. He's not dead anymore. Let him live new. Let him be new. How strange would it have been if Lazarus that day said, you know what? Thank you, Jesus. Profound thing you did there. But he wrapped himself back up, walked into the tomb, and rolled the stone back in front. Would that be strange for an alive man? It would be incredibly strange. Is that what Lazarus did? No. He came out of the tomb and he lived like a brand new person. He had life coursing through his veins once again. This is what Paul is trying to bring out. He says in verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, which we have we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his because according to God's equation, when you have Jesus, death equals life. Death is not what we want, but death is the passageway to eternal life because just as Jesus died, he rose from the grave. We too will find life when we die. Spurgeon put it this way, my favorite preacher of all time, he said, There are no crown wearers in heaven who were not cross bearers below. Isn't that interesting? You don't get the crown without the cross. You don't get to wear the crown in heaven without picking up your cross and following Jesus on the pathway that He He had to death. Now, what we die here on this earth is we die to sin and we die to self. We die to greed, we die to selfishness. We don't have to physically die upon a cross. But notice what Romans 6.11 says: Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Which is it? Death or life? It's both. Jesus came to give you both: death to sin and life with God. Can you have life with God without death to sin? No. Does anyone have death to sin, but not life to God? No. They're a package deal. When we find Jesus Christ, we find both. And that's a beautiful thing that we're unlocking today. Now, let's finish on this because our time is is waning. Let's finish on a glorious freedom. Now, I don't think anyone in this country, if my screen will catch up, likes freedom more than New Hampshire. (coughs) Seriously. I don't know anybody in the world who loves freedom more than New Hampshire because we live in the free world, right? America, at least for now. We hope that stays. And our tagline in New Hampshire is live free or die. And we're not coy about it. Uh, We want people to know that's what we're about here in New Hampshire. And this funny meme on the right, I don't know if you can read that, it says, They may take our cold, our moose, and our old man of the mountain, but they will never take our freedom. (laughs) A little Braveheart scene there. (laughs) Don't we love freedom? And this is the whole point of the lesson today. God is offering us freedom. And New Hampshire, New Hampshireites, whatever word you say, get excited because God has just told us that he's come to give us Freedom. Notice in verse 6, he says, we know that our old self, old Todd, put your name there, was, notice it, crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Amen? Amen? I would say amen to that. The body of sin might be brought to nothing. God would remove that old sinful nature so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, I didn't know that growing up. I didn't know that growing up. I thought God just forgave my sins and I just stayed in my sin. And I remember at age 26 when he came to me and said, Todd, that's not what I do here. I came to remove you from your sin." I ever came to bring you out of that sinful tomb. I came to give you my new nature, to give you my Holy Spirit, to give you the Lord Jesus Christ. I came to recreate you so that you could serve the living God and you can't do that while you're in the tomb. You can't do that in the sinful tomb. You gotta come out. And as soon as you come out, you will find newness of life. He came to disarm sin. For those of us who like puns, That's what Jesus came to do, disarm sin. And that's shocking to hear because we're sinners and sinners sin. And we're always going to sin and we'll always be sinful people. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what the Bible says. That's defeatism. And that's exactly where the devil wants to find us and hold us. I still own you. Sin still owns you. Anytime I want, I can cause you to sin. You belong to me. And that's when the Lord Jesus Christ says, no, God forbid. God forbid. God forbid. I came to save you. I came to restore you. I came to heal you. I came to give you a new nature. I came to give you my Holy Spirit to reside within you so that you could live like the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ didn't commit one sin, did he? In Romans 6.14, the same passage, he says, For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not of the law. What are you under? Grace. And what does grace enable you to do? God's powerful work to live like Jesus Christ. And that's mind-blowing. That, is, that's, that's, I mean, that, that shapes the whole way you think and live in this life if you realize that you are under God's grace and you're not under the law anymore. And here's another cool, cool parallel. And I found an actual picture of Moses. I dug deep into the recesses of Google and I found a picture of Moses. There he is. But... Here's the parallel of Moses, right? The parallel of Moses is that the children of Israel are enslaved to Egypt, enslaved, being mistreated every day of their lives, and then Moses is sent to deliver them, and he tells Pharaoh to let the people go. Did Pharaoh let him go? Initially? How about after the 11th plague, did he let him go? Not even after 11. It took the full full 12, and then he barely let him go, right? He changed his mind after the fact and went after him. Pharaoh did not let the people go. What happened? Moses delivered them. Moses ripped the people of Israel away from the slavery of Egypt. Do you see the parallel? Did Satan let us go? Was Satan ever going to let us go? What had to happen? Jesus Christ had to go in and rip us from the devil and say, these are my people now. You don't own them any longer. And Moses brought them to the Red Sea. He brought them in the wilderness to live with God in the promised land. And that's exactly what God has done for us spiritually. He ripped us from the devil's clutches and said, they're not yours anymore. They're mine. They don't belong to you. And the chains are gone. They've been set free. Here's our last verse that we're going to talk about today. Paul says, For the one who has died has been, notice it, set free from sin. Man, isn't that powerful, guys? I think Christians need to hear this. I think the church needs to hear this. We're set free not just from the penalty of sin, but from the sin. Boy, that changed my entire life when I knew that one truth because I was living in all kinds of perversion and greed and lusts and selfishness and I was just hoping that God would forgive all of that on the other side. And that's when he said to me, Todd, I do have forgiveness for you. Tremendous forgiveness But I've come to unlock the chains of your sin so that you can walk free and you could serve the living God again. And that changed everything for me, guys. That's the day that I got up and I stood up to the devil and said, no more, no more. You don't own me any longer. The sin that you've been holding me in, you don't own me any longer and I'm not going to live my life doing those things anymore. Now I'm going to need a bunch of grace from God in order to overcome that sin. But God said, I have it for you, Todd. And here it is. Whenever you need it, come get it. And I think that's what Jesus was speaking about in John eight thirty six when he said, who the Son sets free, finish it, is free indeed. Are you free from sin? Are you saved from sin? Because there's nothing like freedom, is there? Nothing. When Jesus Christ came to free us from sin, that should be the day that we remember for the rest of our lives. When we shake off the sin, shake off the devil, and start living new for Jesus Christ. That's the day that changed my life. That's why I'm a pastor here today. Because of age 26, 2006, somewhere in the summer, God shook off those chains and said, Todd, you're mine now. Serve me. Love me. Love my people. Obey my word. Obey my commandments. And I could. And I did. And it was shocking that I could. It's shocking that I did because that was not my nature. Guess whose nature it was? Christ's. Now, I'm not saying I'm like Jesus, okay? I'm not saying I've climbed the hill of sanctification yet. I have not. I am ascending that hill just like the rest of us are. But the fact that I can even ascend, the fact that I can even be on that mountain, the fact that I can even be included in the fellowship with Jesus Christ is mind-blowing. And it's all because he set us free. And we sing about this. We sing about this exact thing from Romans chapter 6. You called my name and I ran out of that grave. Have you run out of your grave? Have you embraced the freedom you have in Jesus Christ to live new? What's the point of our lesson today? Let's finish. Number one, if we have been baptized into Christ Jesus, which we have the moment you believe. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ, you've been baptized into his death and eventually into his life. We are no longer slaves of sin, but servants of the living God. And I want us to know that. And I want us to preach that. And I want us to proclaim that. And I want us to live in that reality that we're not sinners, we're servants. We're not sinners anymore. That was our old nature. Now, we could choose to sin because that's what freedom gives you, right? It gives you the opportunity to live whatever your heart desires for. And sin is still an option. We can go back in that tomb and live like a dead guy. But why would we? We're not sinners anymore. We're saints and we're children and servants of the living God. Number two, and I think this is the point of our lesson today, we need to stand up to evil. We need to boldly live for righteousness and love. Because that is the biggest power move over the devil. When we say to him, you don't own me anymore. I belong to the king. And from now on, I'm going to serve the king. I'm not going to serve you. I'm not going to serve the flesh. I'm not going to serve my sin anymore. I'm going to serve my savior, the one who died for me. Because I can. That is being saved. In Isaiah 45, the prophet says this, turn to me and be saved all you the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Do you believe that? Have you turned to Jesus and been saved? Have you? I mean, I'm going to ask that of every soul here, including mine. Have you turned to Jesus and been saved from your sins and the penalty that awaits those sins? And if you, not, if you haven't, today could be the day of your salvation. Today could be the day that you recognize I'm going the wrong way and my Savior came to release me of that pathway. And that's sin forever. And that is the day you lock eyes with Jesus and say, I believe. I believe and from now on I want to follow you. And that is the day of your salvation. I remember my day profoundly. And I implore any of those who are sitting here today, if you have not been saved, seek him out. Seek him out while you can find him. And you will find him. Glory to God. That's walking with God saved. We're going to transition right away to communion And this is going to be a little bit of an abridged version today. But I thought it went so powerfully with our lesson today that we celebrate the forgiveness and the broken body and the spilled blood of our Lord Jesus. Because that's what communion is all about. The word communion means sharing or exchanging of intimate thoughts and feelings, especially when the exchange is on a mental and spiritual level. We get to commune with each other as believers,